the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to start off today talking about the growing financial crisis in Highland Park, a small city that last week asked to become the second in our state to file municipal bankruptcy. Why can't Michigan fix municipal finance, and what does this mean for the people who live in places like Highland Park? And then we're going to meet the new poet laureate of the state of Michigan, Nandi Comer, to talk about her work and her new position. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and... I'm really glad you decided to join us today. We're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the largest municipal bankruptcy filing in U.S. history, when Detroit, Michigan's largest city, had to reorganize and chop down debt just to keep police cars and fire trucks and ambulances operational in the city, just to keep city government going. But has Michigan learned much? Since then, cities all over our state still face really, really big financial problems. Outdated revenue structures, debt that's beyond the capacity to carry, dwindling middle-class populations. Our municipal finance game is broken, plain and simple. Another way to put that is we don't really care much about cities in Michigan until they get into real financial trouble. Which brings us to Highland Park, a city that is literally surrounded by the city of Detroit and one that is facing a financial crisis of at least similar proportion. Highland Park City Council voted in a 3-2 resolution last week to request that the small city of 8,900 residents be the next to enter Chapter 9 municipal bankruptcy. The specific reasons are really harrowing. The city needs to pay off a $24 million water and sewerage bill, and that amount is equal to two and a half times more than the $9.6 million Highland Park collects each year in property taxes. The city is upside down, financially speaking. And this crisis was absolutely predictable. Decades of neglect, population loss, and evaporating tax revenue have meant Highland Park has had few options, if any, to stay solvent and still deliver vital services to the people who live there nearly half of whom live in poverty. 
A little later in the hour, we're going to talk with Michigan's first poet laureate in decades. Nandi Comer is a native Detroiter, and she's someone who writes with an awful lot of passion, experience, and someone who blends different languages and musical interests into her work. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. But before we get there, we need to talk about Highland Park. We need to talk about municipal finance in the state of Michigan. And we need to talk about the future of cities. To do that, we've got City Council member Kershi Ashafi here with us. He was the deciding yes vote to request from Governor Whitmer that Highland Park be allowed to enter into Chapter 9 bankruptcy. Uh, Council member Ashafi, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So let's start with this situation in Highland Park right now. $24 million in uh, back water and sewage bills, uh, $9.6 million a year coming in in property taxes. How did we get there in Highland Park? Well, there have been a number of factors. Uh, from, From, well, I should say, from the start, we had um, a few emergency managers that took us down in the wrong directions under the uh, the previous governor. Uh, but <clears throat> it's 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 literally, believe it or not, on both sides of the table, it's been a lack of not dealing with the issue and allowing it to fester. Yeah, you know. And then we come into office in January of this year and everything is dumped into our laps. You know, this is a a really hot um, piece of coal that has been dumped into our laps. Mm -hmm. And um, we're trying to deal with it as best as possible without putting a strain onto the residents of Highland Park. You know, I mean, this is a lot of money that you're asking us to spread over uh, uh, um, a very small community, um, you know, who would see their tax bills quadruple, you know, this year alone, and it's it's just it's unacceptable. Yeah. Uh, so so um, my decision to go down this particular route was to try my best to try to save the residents of Highland Park from having to carry this load, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned that the city has had uh, emergency managers in place, mm-hmm. not not just once. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a few times uh, yes. under a couple different governors, yes. is, is my memory. Uh, what has not worked? I mean, uh, this is a this is a pretty common situation mm-hmm. in Michigan. The, the uh, emergency managers come in and there mm-hmm. isn't a way mm-hmm. to actually address mm-hmm. the imbalance. So mm-hmm. then they leave and... Mm-hmm. Things go back south pretty quickly. Yeah, well, you know, it, it has been a history of, of using emergency managers, which is why the law really doesn't work for anybody. They actually come in and they make the matter worse. They actually exacerbate the problem, okay? Instead of helping to fix, they actually make the issue worse than what it was. You know, they leave the city in worse shape than when they came. Can you talk mm-hmm. about some of the things that emergency management did yeah, in Highland Park? Yeah, well, well, one of the things in which a couple of the emergency managers did was when they came in, they increased the city's water rates 
without approval, uh, without a vote, you know, from the people. They just they took it upon themselves to increase the water rates, even though we had a standing contract for the cost of water. They just took it upon themselves to increase that rate. So that rate has been going on for over 10 years now with interest because, you know, everybody's charging interest and penalties mm-hmm. for every day that something that's not paid here. I mean, they act like they gave us a loan. It's not a loan. You're bleeding us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's literally a bleed, you know what I'm saying? So as the years roll on and nobody is dealing with the issue or taking responsibilities, the matter gets worse and worse as we continue down the road. And now here we are at 2023, and now this this particular problem has come to a head, and we can no longer kick this can down the road. It must be dealt with. But we all know what the problem is. My question is, what is our solution? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can't sit here and say, woe is me. And they did this and the state did that. And, and who's going to help us out? No, this is a corporation. This city is a business. So as a business, we must have a business mind and figure out what do we have in our possession that we can use to get us out of this particular jam. Mm. You know, we have to look for a solution instead of just sitting there worrying about what the problem is. We know what the problem is. So what's the solution? Yeah. I mean, the problem is that uh, mm-hmm. you have expenses and mm-hmm. debt that uh, are larger than the income that comes into the city from the people who live there. And again, mm-hmm. we should be clear that, that almost half the residents of Highland Park live mm-hmm. in poverty. So this mm-hmm. is not a population that has a lot of money to be able to help exactly. with those with those situations. Uh, I, I want to give you a chance to talk just a little about mm-hmm. why you think bankruptcy is the best option. You were a little on the fence during mm-hmm. the meeting and then eventually did cast mm-hmm. a, a yes vote. What, what mm-hmm. convinced you? Well, first of all, I don't think that bankruptcy is a good option for us, but it is an option. Mm-hmm. And that's really what made me vote yes, okay? I'm trying to look at an angle or a way for us to not put this debt and this strain on the residents of Highland Park. So that's what reluctantly made me vote yes. You know, if we had other options and other avenues, then maybe I may have voted differently. But at the time, that's what I felt, you know, that I felt that we needed to weigh and explore every option possible to get us out of this particular jam that has been ignored for over, uh, over, uh, you know, uh, 10 years. Yeah. 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 I want to play a little clip of Mm -hmm. former Highland Park Mayor Hubert Yop. Mm -hmm. He was mayor from 2008 Mm -hmm. to 2012 Mm -hmm. and from 2016 to 2022. Mm -hmm. And he's talking here about what he thinks Highland Park should do. I want to have you listen to it and then react to what he's saying. Okay. Sure, I would go for bankruptcy rather than see our seniors be without water. They lose their homes. Now, the current governor is sitting on $3 billion dollars. And she could repair or even build a new water system. But I think Highland Park should retain its water system. So this fight over the water system and the struggle with the water system is kind of at the heart of this this question. Uh, What do you think of that idea that Highland Park should retain its water system? Do you think that that works, uh, even with the kind of debt that it's 
accumulating or should it be replaced by the state? Okay. Well, to be honest with you, that was originally the plan from the state. Okay. The plan was to temporarily shut down, fix what needed to be fixed, and the state was supposed to restore the plan. Instead, they shuttled it. You know, the plant was essential to the city of Highland Park. It literally paid every single bill. And we didn't go into this hole that we're in now until the loss of this plant. You know, so, you know, I agree that the plant is essential to the survival of the city of Highland Park. And and the plant that we're talking about, it's a it's a treatment plant yes. that you have there. And mm-hmm. that's where the debt has been accumulated. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what makes you think you can operate that in a way that wouldn't continue to con- accumulate debt even okay. after a bankruptcy? Okay. Well, the plant, okay, to make it clear, the plant n- never accumulated debt. B- before the shutoff of the plant, we were actually in the black. We were actually doing extremely well. It's we, because it wasn't operating. Uh, uh, yeah, go uh, ahead. Oh, okay, so so when the plant was operating, we were making money. Bills were paid. The plant literally paid for everything in which the city had to deal with. It was the loss of that revenue, that income, that literally it was basically a nail in the coffin you know so it was just a matter of time after they shuttled our plant that this would come to a head i mean you go from producing your own water to paying for water from somebody else mm-hmm. i mean it's inevitable right right yeah i, I want to listen to another clip this is uh wdet reporter laura herberg talking with resident of Highland Park about what they would do if their water bills increased. And that's one of the ways I guess you could uh, continue, could be able to pay this debt is to have citizens mm-hmm. pay it. Uh, let's listen to what the citizen says. If they put it on the residents, would that be something that you could even add to your expenses? No, I can't. I can't afford it if they put it on my re- on my bill. I don't think that's fair. I don't know what I would do if they added it to my bill. So what do you hear from residents about uh, this idea that maybe they could help or or maybe even have to bear the entire burden of this debt? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think this is an option for us at all. Okay, I don't think that this is a debt that should be put on the residents of Highland Park. The truth of the matter is the residents of Highland Park have been paying their bills, you know. Now, somewhere, I don't know where, I don't know who, I can't seem to get an answer to what happened, but somewhere somebody stopped paying Glee in 2021. And I find it unacceptable that now this has come to a head. You know, you know, based on the court ruling that we had to make sure to keep up the payments. But somewhere that happened. But I don't think that this is an option that needs to be put on the residents of Highland Park. The residents of Highland Park didn't make this debt. They shouldn't have to pay this debt. The city should take this debt. And then we should be allowed, if anything, to work that debt out with the help from the state. Uh, 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 um, um, and from the legislative body, if possible. But I don't feel that this is something that should be put on the residents of Highland Park. I find it unacceptable. If I'm paying my bill, it's unacceptable for you to come back to me and say, hey, I need you to take this debt and pay some more. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm sorry, it's unacceptable. I'm talking <clears throat> with Highland uh, Park City Council member Kershid Ashafi. He represents District District Three, three mm-hmm. in Highland uh, Park. We're talking about the vote last week by uh, that city city council uh, to ask the state that the city city be allowed to file municipal bankruptcy to reorganize about $24 million uh, in debt uh, from water and sewage bills. Uh, We would love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, Give us a call. Let us know what you think is uh, the solution to Highland Park's financial problems. Do you agree that bankruptcy is maybe the way uh, to reorganize that debt and send the city on its way? Or do you think that we need more uh, substantial reform for municipal finance in the the state of Michigan? We are coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the city of Detroit filing the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. Uh, What have we learned uh, in those 10 years? What are we doing differently? What are we doing to make sure that cities like Highland Park, small cities uh, with a lot of residents who live in poverty, how can they function? How can they keep vital services intact uh, with the way that we do things? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Uh, Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. So Council President Jamal Thomas voted no on the bankruptcy filing. He uh, did not want to come on the program to talk today, but he did offer this comment, and I want to get you to react to it. He says, we hope to establish a constructive dialogue with the, the Great Lakes Water Authority the state treasurer and the governor's office between now and our return to court, uh, to the date that we would return to court. Our position is grounded in historical facts and empirical evidence. A pathway to resolution has always been possible. And with a Democratic governor and the, Democratic, the Democrats controlling the legislature, there is no better time to secure the infrastructure funding and repairs needed to update our water system. There is this idea out there that the governor uh, put out there that uh, the Great Lakes Water Authority may be able to solve the debt issue by tapping a $25 million state clean drinking water grant in order to make the repair to to, to make the repairs uh, to the uh, to the uh, to the treatment plant, is that a better way in your in your <clears throat> estimation? I think that's an option. I think that is 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 definitely an option. But we need to stop. Um, most definitely, we need to come back to the table and sit down and discuss this. There's a way out of this situation if everybody can come to the table with calm and cool and collective heads and actually work out an agreement with the Great Lakes Water Authority and sit down and discuss these matters. You know, there's a way out of this for everybody, you know what I'm saying, where nobody loses face, everybody gets what they're looking for, and Highland Park can move forward, you know. So no more uh, pointing the fingers, no more saying it's your fault, no, it's your fault. That's that's. That's irrelevant. Let's come to a solution. And there are multiple solutions out there in which Highland Park can get out from under the dead in which it's in and move the city forward. So uh, one question I have is whether if let's say the the, the money was there to fix the plant and have it operate, Mm -hmm. would the plant not fall back into disrepair? 
disrepair? I mean, how did it fall into the disrepair in the first place that caused its closure and okay. caused you to lose that revenue? Okay, well, you know, that is an interesting story because the truth of the matter is it never fell into disrepair. It was operating and working just fine, okay? What happened was is we had a mayor at the time who decided under his own accord that the plant was no longer viable. He had the money to make, he had the money to make the repairs in which the state required of him to do. And he decided to simply shutter the plant. Mm -hmm. So one person shut down our water plant and put us into the bind in which we're in now today. Something like that can never happen again. No one person should ever be allowed to put an entire city at jeopardy like that, mm-hmm. you know? And this happened back in 2015, and you know who the mayor was at that time, but this one individual literally put the nail into the coffin of Highland Park, and it should have never happened. He should have never been allowed to do such a thing. No one person should be allowed to bring a city to the brink of destruction as he did for us back in 2015. This plan was up and running. It was fine. It had passed every requirement from the DEQ. There was no reason to shutter this plan, but that's what was done. So I don't know if someone told him to do it or he decided to do it on his own. But like I said, this is where our problem started right here in 2015 when this plant was illegally shut down and then the council had the audacity not to have the courage to stand up and overturn his veto for shutting the plant down. They just allowed it to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to take a call here mm-hmm. from Lisa in Highland Park. She wants to talk more about how this uh, water issue uh, got so so bad. Lisa, go ahead. Um, hi, guys. Uh, so I um, I just want to let you know that I have um, you know spent a good portion of the winter doing research on what happened with the water plant in Highland Park mm-hmm. and. Uh, and this is actually uh, my first comment is not from my research. Hi, Krishid. Um hi, I just Lisa. wanted to, hi. I just wanted to um, uh, to mention that a few years back, I was speaking with uh, another former mayor of Highland Park, and he told me that there was once equipment that was purchased for um, the Highland Park water plant and that there was a break-in and people stole the equipment. Um, Mm. uh, So I don't know that the other mayor had done that necessarily, you know, out of malfeasance, but maybe out of, gosh, you know, now what are we going to do? They stole the new equipment that was going to be put in. Um, so um, I, uh, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, I, I, I don't really know that much about the situation. Yeah. But the, uh, the emergency manager situation is actually the one that I wanted to talk about originally. Um, so um, in 2009, between April and July, there was um, an emergency manager by the name of Robert Mason mm-hmm. who um, was uh, brought in to Highland Park by uh, Governor Granholm, and uh, apparently, unbeknownst to anybody, you know, in Highland Park, he signed a piece of paper um, that made null and void um, the contract that um, Highland Park and the city of Detroit right. had long-standing. Yes, um, um, and that um, that contract had a built-in, you know, incremental increase each year. And um, 
uh, he signed a contract basically saying that, okay, from now on, you can charge Highland Park whatever you want. Um, and so, uh, you know, a few years later, when, uh, when they're suing Highland Park for, they're, they're suing Highland Park for the difference between what our old contract said, which was what we were paying, and, you know, the, the amount that... Yeah. Lisa, um, I, don't, I don't want to cut you off, but I do need to, to get to uh, a break. I really appreciate you calling and, and, and sharing yeah. that. It's really important to understanding this. It's a, it's a pretty complicated tale about how we got here, but I think it's, uh, it's enough to say that the, the mistakes that were made with this plant are the reason that uh, that Highland Park faces such uh, you know such a, a steep debt right now, and that right, yeah. Um, okay, so, at least I've got to I've got to yeah I've got to I've got to move on. I'm I'm sorry, um, uh, Krishid, uh, uh I want to I want to ask you what you think will happen if if Highland Park does not go to bankruptcy. What the options look like? Well. <clears throat> I think if any options are lost, they, the main option that needs to happen is is everybody needs to come back to the table. We need to sit down, wiggly, well, there is a solution here. We need to sit down, wiggly, well, with the state, there is a solution here. There is a way that we can work this matter out. You know, there's no reason to point fingers at anybody. There's no reason to call names, no reason to make attacks. There is a way and a solution to work this problem out. And I don't believe that anybody wants to see the city of Highland Park fail. You know, it's, it, it, it would just not be a good look for the state. Well, I mean, it would be a yeah. disaster, yeah. right? I mean, what would, would happen to the people? who live there and exactly. count on the services. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Krishida uh, Shafi, mm-hmm. I really appreciate you mm-hmm. coming in to, mm-hmm. to talk about this. I should also mm-hmm. correct something I said earlier. Mm-hmm. I said that uh, Council President Jamal Thomas voted no mm-hmm. on the bankruptcy yes. filing. He actually he voted, voted yes. yes. So mm-hmm. uh, we need to make sure mm-hmm. that we get that right. Okay. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to keep talking about the state of Michigan, but we are going to talk with the state's first poet laureate in decades. Nandi Comer joins us next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET provides trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. If there is one thing that Nandi Comer seems to be, it is busy. 
The Detroit native is a poet and someone who is super active in an awful lot of community writing and artistic scenes. She's worked with various organizations, including the really wonderful Inside Out Literary Arts Projects. She has served as a curriculum developer and youth curriculum consultant for a lot of arts organizations. And she has a writer in residence in Detroit's public schools. And she now currently works as the director of the Allied Media Project Speakers Bureau and as the co-director of Detroit Lit, a program that provides reading and professional development opportunities to narrative makers of color here in Detroit. But that is not all she is going to be doing because recently Nandi Comer was named to be the first poet laureate in the state of Michigan since the 1950s. I'm really pleased to have Nandi here in, a, in the studio with us to discuss what drives her work, how Detroit influences her art, and what she makes of Michigan having a Poet Laureate once again. Nandi Comer, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here, and congratulations Thank you. on being named the Poet Laureate for the state of Michigan. I wanted to hear how you reacted when you learned that uh, that you would be our next Poet Laureate and that uh, you'd be the first one since the 1950s. <laughs> well, um well, I've known a little bit. I've known a little bit longer than the rest of the state. And when they called and sent me emails, I was just very much floored because uh, when they when I was a finalist, when I was named as a finalist, I thought, "Oh, there's no way that I'll I'll get this. This is more like a a, a lifetime achievement kind of <laughs> uh, acknowledgement." And then when they told me that they were really interested in having me fulfill the position, it really, really was an honor. It shocked, floored me. And then when, every time anyone says it, like Nandi Comer, the Michigan Poet Laureate, I still feel something in my stomach, like, oh, wow, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) So when they called you, uh, did they explain what the expectation might be for this this role? I mean, given that we haven't had one since Mm -hmm. the 1950s, I guess I'm kind of curious about what the what the aim is here? Well, um, one of the things that uh, I think folks should know is that the the position is um, spearheaded by the Michigan Department of Education, mm-hmm. the governor's office, and the Library of Michigan. So there is a very big focus on thinking about the youth and thinking about education and how young writers will be influenced and shaped um, through this work. And so we actually ha- worked collaboratively to design what the position looks like because you, no one has done this before. It's been 60 <laughs> right. years. We can't so. even talk to somebody <laughs> well, who you know, would remember what we did. I've been you know, talking to laureates around the country and we talked to some people that have been on selection committees and discussed like, what that actually looks like in other states. But we really wanted to think about what Michigan needed, what did Michigan youth need. And so a lot of the position, the formal kind of position, because there's just so much that I want to do outside of what the state has asked me to do. But a lot of the formal um, responsibilities will be to visit schools and libraries all over the state, both in the Upper and Lower Peninsula. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of it's really exciting. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, the work that you do now, uh, I think, is is best described as trying to bring poetry to as many people as possible Mm -hmm. to get people interested in it, to get people interested in 
doing it. It, it seems like uh, being the poet laureate is kind of a natural extension then mm-hmm. really of that work and puts it on a much bigger platform, the entire state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, some people ask, how do I even get my own poems done? But um, <laughs> I really think that because I had really strong mentors and really strong supporters of my own work, I feel constantly like there has to be a way to support more writers coming down this path or to kind of give a more um, more clarity to how writers get shaped, especially in Michigan. I think that oftentimes we don't, in Detroit in particular, we just don't know how do we go from writing in our notebooks to getting a book. And so a lot of the time I really do love like pulling aside young and older writers and saying, these are some of the ways that you can get involved. This is how you do it on a local level. This is how you do it on a national level. And if you want an international opportunity. So, uh, you know, this doesn't really feel outside of the scope of the kind of work that I've been doing for a really long time. Yeah. So tell me about what led you to this work? Uh, I've known you and known your work for a bit, and I want to hear the story about how you become a poet. There's so many stages. (laughs) Um, It doesn't, I don't think it happened overnight for me. Um, I like to tell everyone that, you know, um, now I'm an avid reader, but when I was young, it was actually really quite hard because I was a slow reader. And I don't think I had a problem with comprehension. I just really sat down with with words and I just really was slow to take them in. So that meant that I was in the slow reading group and I didn't really think I could be, you know, that kind of fast paced reader and writer. Mm. And then um, once I got to high school, I had a teacher, Terry Blackhawk, who later became the founder of Inside Out Literary Arts Project that yes. a lot of people know. Yes. Um, and they she she started um, what was kind of the prototype of putting, bringing writers and introducing her students to professional writers. And I remember meeting people like Peter Marcus and Leslie Reese, who are from the Detroit area, and just really um, understanding. Oh, this is what this is what I actually can can do with my time. And but then I had a later and kind of the same time I had another mentor through there used to be a thing called the um, Summer Youth Employment Program. And they had the Summer Arts Program Mm -hmm. where they actually hired young artists to produce theatrical performances. And I enrolled in the Writers Program and I studied for the first time under Vivi Francis. And she took what I was doing in school where I was like, I think this is a poem. And she was like, (laughs) but is this the poem that you want to write? Is this what you actually feel or do? And she shifted. And along with other influences in the 90s, like the open mic scene, seeing Jessica Care more, being friends with people like Joe Fluent, well, Fluent, Joe Fluent Mm, Green. And um, that all just really shaped kind of like my foundation for writing. And there's been so many more experiences since then. But those are like really those key moments in my high school years are what really started me into poetry. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting to hear you describe being a, yourself as being a slow reader. I, I, I was the same way. And in some ways, I still am. I, I labor over the words and the sentences and the structure and the meaning and, and sometimes read a sentence two or three times before I go on to the next one. And it's, you know, it's so unfortunate, I think, that sometimes people take that as 
about as being about ability or mm-hmm. interest, right? Uh, you're not someone who's just burning through mm-hmm. novels or 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 even uh, nonfiction works. I mean, you're somebody who's taking your time, and I think that's such a critical part of being someone who creates words and stories mm-hmm. and narrative is is that time and and taking it for yourself and not feeling guilty about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think also um, something about being a part of a community can really foster your work, right? So I spoke about those two teachers, but then when I think back on um, the writers that were around me and the writers that my parents always had, they had a bookshelf. And I remember just like kind of robbing their bookshelf and taking (laughs) all their books with me to to college. But I remember um, like the year that I got a Kresge, I also got it. um, The eminent artist was... Gloria House. Mm-hmm. And it felt so natural because she had been in my life since I was a child doing the work that she was doing. And so it feels like Detroit does that. Like we just have writers all around. We're really strong poetry um, city. And so I don't think, I think that people in Detroit sometimes don't know just how amazing it is yeah. to just be around writers all the time. Yeah. Uh, and you gave a shout out to Terry Blackhawk and and Inside Out, and I want to hit that again. I mean, the the tremendous community that has grown up around that organization, uh, the number of young people who at this point have come through that and been mm-hmm. part of it and now make up uh, the poetry or 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 the other kinds of art scenes here in Detroit. It's just it's just mind blowing. Uh, I mentioned them last week when I had Tiamba Jess on the program uh, because he's a big fan and and now you're here and you're I mean you're a, really a product of oh yeah I definitely I'm an alum I'm an alumna yeah. I definitely um, and I go back often I'll be with them next month visiting some of their schools for their. Uh, publication parties and things like that. I can't wait. And that was that was set up before the laureate announcement. But I, <laughs> it's just because I really do enjoy um, meeting young people right when they're at a moment of feeling like they need to express themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that poetry is a really incredible tool. I don't set out to make professional poets. What I set out to do is to make sure that a student knows that they have tools at their access to express themselves. And I'm not going to reach everyone. Some of them are going to find music as the way to do that. And some will find science, but it's really amazing when you find someone who didn't think that poetry could be that, that outlet for them. And then you show them something that they didn't know was a, could be a poem. And they're like, Oh, I see myself in that. And I want to tell my story too. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing yourself in something it's it's such a key part of uh, becoming that kind of creator or or artist yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue this really wonderful conversation with nandi comer who is michigan's first poet laureate in many decades uh, we'll also want to start uh, getting you involved in the conversation do you enjoy poetry how has that art form impacted you in your life alternatively maybe you don't love poetry what would get you more interested in it what would you like to see michigan's poet laureate do to get more people interested in and involved in poetry 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones that's 313-577-1019 
1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined. I'm sitting here with Nandi Comer, who is the new Michigan Poet Laureate, also author of American Family Syndrome, as well as Tapping Out. We're talking about poetry. We're talking about Poet Laureate, uh, that role that has not been filled here in the state of Michigan since the 1950s and what Nandi will do in that role. would love to hear from you as well. Uh, what do you make of poetry and how does it play a role, I guess, in your life? Uh, give us a call and let us know. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can include you in the in the program that way. Uh, Nandi, I do want to have you read for us. Um, uh, but I first want to talk about the role that music plays in your work. Uh, when I when Tyan Bajess was here last week, I talked about for me that that being one of the most exciting parts of poetry, uh, the way that other artistic influences kind of overlap uh, so mm-hmm. often, uh, rhythm and pacing, uh, all of those things uh, as writers, uh, we borrow from other, from other art forms. Uh, and I think poetry does that in really a magical way. But, but uh, I, I want to hear you talk about uh, why music is such an important part of your work. Um, I know at one point, uh, sometimes when I'm revising my work, I revise for a lot of different things, punctuation, clarity, but sometimes I just want to see if it sings. Mm. Um, literally, literally like, uh, the muscle music of the language. I really want to see if I can press into the language so that someone who is reading it can take it, read it out loud and really get a sense for the original sound that I was thinking of when I was writing the work. Um, I mean, poetry, we think of it now as being like kind of a stuffy art form that is tucked away in books, but it has always been an an oratory kind of spoken spoken art form from like wherever you want to draw from. You can draw from the um, ancient Arab Arab, um, influence of like the, the huzzle. You can look to griots that use the drum as a as a way of keeping time the lyre you can just all over the world the poet and the musician has always been tied and i even think about today's hip hop artists mm-hmm. you know it's very um it's very like natural to think of the rhythm of the work now there are some poets who have other concentrations but for my own work i am thinking about lyric and how it is um giving giving depth within sound and meaning in the work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I always say that I learned as much about writing, and I'm not a poet, I'm a, a journalist, but I learned as much about writing from music and musicians, especially when I was a teenager, um, as I did from from other other writers. Uh, the, 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 the kind of pacing and phrasing 
of, of a Miles Davis, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, has a real uh, connection to the way that I pace and phrase words uh, on a page or, or, or Paul Simon. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, a, a really broad range of music was really the foundation for me. And I think that's pretty common mm-hmm. among among writers. Yeah, I mean, um, I can definitely, someone asked me about the influences on my writing when I was writing my um, first full-length collection. And yeah, I spoke to poets, but I was also speaking to like, it, the poems have a lot to do with my time in Mexico, so Mexican corridos. But like my poems have always been um, influenced by music. I remember in like the 90s in high school being like headphones on, sitting in front of my boombox, listening to the score by the Fugees on repeat, <laughs> just trying to figure out how I was going to really reconcile this problem I had in a poem. So yeah, I definitely have moments where I just like, Sometimes I'm just listening to one song on repeat while I'm writing a poem. And sometimes it's in silence, but it just, it is important to me, the music of the poem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What would you like to read for us, Nandi? I'm going to read a fairly new poem. Um, It's not um, actually published anywhere yet. I've read it in public before, but I've been thinking a lot about stories and Detroit stories. And so... One time I was brought into a TV writer's room who they were writing a show about Detroit that never, it never actually came (laughs) to uh, the light of day. But one of the executives asked that the last question was, what do you feel like people get wrong when they try to tell stories about Detroit? So that's the title Mm. of the poem. Yeah. What do you feel like people get wrong when they try to tell stories about Detroit? Everything. The calligraphy of a burned rubber joyride scrolled and spinning at every street corner, driving out of the way to get to your familiar corner store. The murals memorializing our loss or towering the towering face of a woman rocking an old English D as big as your face. Everything. You've forgotten 6 a.m. tamales in Southwest, Westside bare knuckle fight clubs, If you aren't careful, you will miss the bedazzled cluster of red hat club ladies gathered for third Sunday brunch. Or you might miss the buzz of a rainbow casino beckoning young thirsty beggars. Outside, never say river. And you are an outsider. Say it. If you only see the motor, you might forget gators and Coney Islands. Every sag and our old porch is from the weight of a good grill or a nighttime rib cookout. There is a street where a man has spilled shoes around a collection of vacuums. He lives in a polka-dotted house. We call it home. Careful not to forget our affinity for the elaborate and bright. Our weekend outfits are laced in gold-gilded shine. Everything you are thinking is not enough. Every shrub, every face, every burnout building is not a conjuring to be storied. We are a slighted bunch, a forgotten myth. Come, sit in our open-faced burger of a city. Find the fantasy between our children's teeth and a summer torrential storm. Where is your story? Take a seat. Listen. Wow. Wow. I love that line. If you only see the motor, you might forget 
skaters in Coney Island. <laughs> it's such wonderful imagery. Uh, the imagery throughout that poem, in fact, is just uh, it's so vivid. It's like you're painting, not writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about the national narrative of Detroit and then how many individual stories are lost in the national narrative. And so I've been writing a lot, trying to write to those those details that we all know mm-hmm. in our city. That but, we live. Yeah, we live them. And so, yeah. yeah. Is this, is this part of another book coming? Maybe? I don't want to speak that out just yet. There are some other projects that I'm working on, too. So right. um, I, this may show up somewhere, but I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I also don't know that I'm completely done with it yet. I was really, I just wanted to share something. that Revision, right? Yeah. That's an important part of the process, mm-hmm. too. And and I think not, not an acknowledged part of the process oh. often. Often yeah. enough, right? Revision is, I would say, 95% of the writing. If you have not thought to revise, then you're not done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes they come easy, <laughs> but sometimes, a lot of times they come with work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. Let's go to Janice in Detroit. Janice, welcome to the show. Hello. Good morning to everyone. Thank Hi. you for taking my call. Sure. I'm, I know that a lot of your conversation, Ms. Comer, has been focused on youth, and that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I'm 73, and I really, really enjoyed having Inside Out. Susanna Honda came to Hannon House, wow. and she reawakened something I thought was long gone in my life, and that's my love of writing poetry. I did when I was younger, and I remember sending in a poem to a magazine. I didn't even have it on a typewritten paper. I just hand wrote it and sent it in. I know it went in somebody's file 13, but Susanna (laughs) through Inside Out gave us an opportunity to really have our poems. She really inspired us so much. And many of us were, were writers already and had quite a grand collection. So I just because we're older doesn't mean that we are run yeah. out of juice. It gives us wonderful oh. opportunity to recall, revisit, and speak our lives again. Yeah, yeah. Janice, yeah. what a wonderful, what a wonderful thought! And I'm so glad you called and and shared that. Poetry is for everyone. Uh, no, no question about that. Uh, Nandi, we're going to run out of time, but I know you want to talk a little about the idea of a. Detroit Poet Laureate. We don't have one. I think we should. <laughs> well, I just want to, I, I think that it's, uh, we've gone 60 years without a Michigan Poet Laureate. And I really would be really sad if Detroit went 60 years yeah. without a, a Poet Laureate. I um, grew up uh, benefiting from the projects and from like the contest we um, that uh, Naomi Long Magic mm-hmm. uh spearheaded and I've read a lot of the work that she helped to usher into the world through her press and I really think that she was we, the city's poet laureate yes yeah, she was yeah. a city she was yeah. the city's poet laureate yeah. and um unfortunately we lost her she passed away recently and the city has a vacancy and mm. I really am looking forward to not only seeing the city choose the poet laureate, but I'm looking forward to working yes. with that person yes. when they are appointed. So I would say, please, let's get it going. Let's, let's get going. Let's on be that. going on yeah. that. Yeah. All right, Nandi Comer, 
It's always great to see you, uh, and really great to have you as Michigan's Poet Laureate now. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow, and we'll have more great programming for you here on Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.